This week, 60 Weeks, 60 Books, explores the book that, looking back, I now realise reshaped the course of my life, and which, on every reread, ensnares and rewards me as I turn the pages. At school, I gave up English after O-level. This was partly because I found my English teacher profoundly, terribly dull and unimaginative. I remember my excitement. English at prep school had been little reading and much parsing of sentences and learning parts of speech. I thought that surely English at big school would be better. But no. Our first book was Great Expectations, a novel that I loathed. Pip was a repulsive, self-centred snob. The Gargeries miserable, Estella loathsome and the story ridiculous and stupid. We took turns, stumblingly reading Dickens's prose as the wind and the rain lashed at the windows of our classroom. And when we weren't reading ourselves, Miss S droned her way through the prose as if reading a phone directory. My love for literature withered and I struggled to a C at O-level. Regarding Great Expectations, I am glad to say I revisited the book at university and finally had the opportunity to see just how sinister, dark and brilliant it truly is. But not as brilliant as Bleak House, the subject of today's podcast. As a result of my terrible English literature O-level result, I turned to geography. We had been taught by Miss Skinner, She was slender, with a sharp nose, watery eyes, a dark bob. She wore sensible Mary Janes and pinafore dresses with long cardigans, and her descriptions of meanders, roche moutonnet, eruptions, and the complexities of rain gauges and anemometers were enthralling. No, really, she was a magnetic personality. She was a drillmeister, a termagant, and a perfectionist. I lurked at the bottom of the class through the three years that she taught me, mainly because every diagram I ever did was smudged and chaotic. I was never very good at physical geography, but I adored human geography. And much to everyone's astonishment, the combination of the solid foundation that Miss Skinner had laid alongside my own enthusiasm for making sense of tables of coal consumption and the characteristics of new towns secured me an A at O-level. Unfortunately, Miss Skinner moved to Pastures New before I started my A-level in sixth form, and the combination of two nervous new teachers and an underlying depression that developed my skills in skiving classes but little else, I struggled with A-level. Meanwhile, my friends were also wrestling with A-level English literature, tortured particularly by a huge, complicated book that seemed to make no sense whatsoever. We had just come back in September 1980, starting our final year at school. As upper sixths, we were moved out of the main houses and into Lawrence House, with university-style bedrooms, functioning kitchens, with unlimited supplies of tea, coffee, milk, sugar, bread and butter, and many industrial toasters. We learned how to repurpose the milk, sugar and butter into passable fudge, how to reheat Frey Bentos pies, and in my case, how to make chicken casserole. The rooms were lighter and fresher than in main school, and we decorated them with rugs and pillows from Habitat and the reject shop. Sitting in one of the rooms at the start of term, catching up on holiday gossip, my hand fell on a copy of Bleak House on the floor, the source of so much pain during the holidays when everyone studying English literature was meant to have read the book. I picked it up, opened it to see what all the ache was about, 
and disappeared into its foggy, complicated depths. I was meant to be making notes about Le Grand Moon and Balzac's short stories, conjugating subjunctives, mastering the intricacies of the Corn Laws and the 1832 Reform Act, revising tectonic plates and continental shells for geography. But for days, maybe a week, maybe ten, I was no longer in school at all, but back in the 1830s in a London where Miss Flight walked and Tulkinghorn met his well-deserved end in the damp and dreary Lincolnshire wastes of Chesney World, in Bleak House itself, a house made warm and kindly by the presence of John Jarndyce and his wards, Esther Summerson, Ada Clare and Richard Carstone, where Inspector Bucket stalked, Skimple skipped and Crook sat festering on his combustible wares. I absolutely loved the book, and as was my way, finished it and went straight back to the beginning again. It was the moment that it sank in that I should have taken English literature instead of geography. Of course, it was too late. There was no way of changing subjects four terms into a six-term course. There was no way of going back on my university applications for history and politics at Durham. There was really little likelihood that I would be able to catch up on the work I needed to do for any of the three subjects that I was meant to be studying, let alone a completely new one. My memories of sixth form are retreating to bed and reading books as a panacea. Any books. Since reaching the sixth form, we had regular weekend access to Brighton, and my favourite pastime was to head to the second-hand bookshops of the Lanes and the North Lanes to pick up classics and trash in equal measure. By the time I read Bleak House, I had made my way through the 18th century to the 20th, eating up the first epistolary novel, Pamela, the Gothics, Castle of Otranto, Mysteries of Udolpho and the Monk, Viette, Far from the Madding Crowd and Return of the Native, Tender is the Night, The Sun Also Rises, The Wasteland, Proofrock, Ezra Pound's Chinese Cantos, Hilda Doolittle, Anais Nin and Henry Miller, Sybil Bedford's memoirs, Peter Fleming's adventures in China and Brazil, alongside the usual diet of Jilly Cooper, Kathleen Woodowis and Carol Mortimer and Charlotte Lamb, two of Mills and Boone's more prolific writers. I had already developed the gift of summoning up mysterious ailments, fevers and aches, allowing me to loaf around in my room eating toast and drinking instant coffee and exerting myself only for the weekly classes of Mrs Craig, a ferocious French woman who was the only teacher to actually educate us. In her classes, I was introduced to Ronsard and Molière, to Villon and Du Bellay. On my own, I began with Maupassant and Baudelaire, made my way through the plays of Tennessee Williams and Oscar Wilde, Eugene O'Neill and Lillian Hellman. Books were all. Home from boarding school, I would read into the early hours in a wild jumble of genres, styles and periods. Because I was not doing the graft necessary for my actual A-levels, I elevated the quality of what I was reading as a smokescreen. Yes, I had totally failed my mocks, but at least I could comment intelligently on Keats and Blake. I fully grasped the complex narrative games that Dickens plays with us in Bleak House. That narrative is, in my view, the book's great gift – its superpower. First, there is Dickens' omniscient, cynical, ironic, bitter narrator, clearly masculine, travelling where no woman could go, interwoven with Esther Summerson's disingenuous tale of her ignominious start in life, where her cold aunt pronounces, you are your mother's disgrace and she is yours. 
Esther's preparation as a governess or companion, her arrival at Bleak House, where she is given the keys and may manage her own world for the first time in her life. Out in the world, Esther encounters dreadful people, Mrs. Jellyby, Mrs. Pardiggle, Harold Skimple. Superficially, she does not criticise, but her eye is acute. She observes and recounts their flaws, follies and delusions. She may assert that she is a foolish, ignorant young woman, but she has quite as acute a satirical eye as the nameless male narrator, and between them the pair guide us through the tragic impact of chancery on the characters and plot of Bleak House. The book was particularly powerful for me, I think, because around this time, one of my dearest friends, to this day, would invite us to the flat her parents then owned in Hoban. We spent many weekends there getting up to the kind of nonsense that teenage girls excel in, mostly involving fags, booze and boys. I remember waking up, showering and going for meandering walks around Chancery Lane, Lambs Conduit Street, Farringdon, Doughty Street and Lincoln's Inn Fields. In 1979, 1980 and 1981, when I was still getting to know London independently, Hoban, the city and Bloomsbury were still recognisably Dickensian with meandering lanes, grubby buildings, fusty shops, pawnbrokers, vintage clothes sellers, antique shops full of yellowing prints and dull busts of anonymous 18th century men in wigs and proper butchers and bakers selling pies and buns, gloomy delicatessens concealing reeking cheese counters and endless varieties of dried pasta. Forty years on, quite apart from the cookie-cutter modern buildings and gentrification, we have also seen the disappearance of independent shops and family businesses, quirky restaurants, unhygienic pubs, greasy spoon cafes and the murky venues where a teenager with a small allowance that was running short could sit for long hours nursing a single coffee and a Mars bar. The public libraries I frequented have been turned into private clubs and chain restaurants serving pallid replicas of pasta and pizza. Opening Bleak House again, whether as the magnificent audiobook recorded by Miriam Margulies or the book itself, I am transported not only to Dickens's London, but to my own London, learnt at 16, 17, 18. The prose, the plot, the interweaving of clues and hints and suggestions of atmosphere and ambience, all are as compulsive and propulsive as ever. It is the most magnificent book. So, what happened next? Although technically I passed my A-levels at Rodine, my performance was far from stellar and I certainly was nowhere near the grades I needed to take up my place at Durham. My parents offered me a lifeline. I could have a year at a crammer's in London. I could and should retake French and history, but geography I would exchange for a one-year course in English literature. When I came to complete my university application form, I went for English and philosophy as a degree in universities as far from Sussex as I could find. It was a lovely year living at home, taking the tube every day to Gloucester Place, taking classes where I learnt from my history tutor, tutor, Hugh, who reeked of last night's pints, how to build a coherent argument and counter-argument, how to construct a decent essay where my resting actress, English tutor, led us through deconstructions of Chaucer, King Lear and D.H. Lawrence, and I developed a huge crush on the tiny Charles, who introduced me to metaphysical poets and my later love, John Donne. 
where our elderly French teacher, a lady whose name I cannot remember, hammered grammar and translation skills into my reluctant skull. And meanwhile, thanks to Bleak House, I knew that I could conquer any book, no matter how long or how complicated. I was well equipped when I arrived in Aberdeen in the autumn of 1982 and discovered that I had read all but one of the prescribed books for the English literature course and most of the texts for the classical civilization course that I also could not wait to take. Since then, I have spent the last 30 years teaching English and more recently classics, a working life sharing wonderful literature with both the students who struggled but got there in the end as well as the amazing pupils I taught who also loved books with all their complexities. Would this have happened without that chance moment when I picked up Bleak House? I don't think so. Next week, join me for a look at a Shakespearean tragedy that is the ultimate teen drama. No, not Romeo and Juliet. To find out, you will just have to listen. See you next week.